Welcome to the Expository Word Podcast, featuring classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. My friends, is there any lesson for a New Testament Christian here tonight? You know, a tremendous message would be on the slowness of God. And something we can take from this text, friends, is this. We need to not promote ourselves, but to be patient to believe God's promise. And that is God will be faithful to us. We need to be a humble servant. Today, Kimber continues teaching through the book of Samuel. And our hope is that you will be challenged and encouraged by listening in. Let's turn now to Kimber. We continue in our study, and if you'll notice in the bulletin, it says part 25 of our series. I didn't even know that until uh, I read that myself in the bulletin today. And I'm hoping that this application, as far as the explanation of the text, we've already taken care of that this morning, and so we will continue in application. And let me uh, quickly... Uh, uh, do a quick survey as to what we have considered so far in this passage of Scripture uh, as far as understanding what it was written and then make some applications to our lives. And first off, we could outline it. Dale Ralph Davis uh, from Reformed Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi makes this outline. I've got to give him the credit for it. He talks about Saul's son and his clothes in the first four verses. They come back from victory over Goliath. There is David's carrying his head. Saul finds out who David is, finds out more about him. And um, then Jonathan and him are knit together. And it's very interesting to me, and several made comments of how interested it is that Jonathan could possibly have been in his 50s and David about in his late teens. And that's sort of a shell-shocking your idea of David and Jonathan relationship. But nevertheless, uh, David's then success, a survey of David's success is then given. Then Saul's displeasure in his spear. The number one hit song in Casey Kasem's top 40 in Israel then was... Uh, Saul has killed his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was grieved in his heart, and, and, and he trembled. He literally trembled, is what the, the text says. He was so discouraged, and he says, they're, they're going to give David the kingdom. And I think he started thinking at that moment, hey, Samuel told me that he was going to give the kingdom to a man better than me. And I think he might have been saying right then, this might be the guy. And so then you see in verses 12 through 16, another definition of success. David is unbelievably successful, and the statements keep going, the Lord is with him, the Lord is with him. Saul realizes it, David is successful. Then a daughter in her price. And the first daughter, David says no, or somebody says no, we're not sure. There's even a theory that David was jilted there, but we're not sure. But then uh, we know the second daughter comes along, David seems to want to go for her. And uh, he says, all right, you uh, kill 100 Philistines, prove it, and uh, you can have her, because Saul was trying to get David knocked off, you remember. And you see all through this, and David's success again is stated. Now, something that is important as far as our application from this morning, and I, I hope the Spirit of God used this, is the two keynotes laid side by side in this chapter are these. Number one, God's favor upon David is clear. Over and over, as we have reviewed, we're told of David's success, God being with him, David being loved. That's put up against Saul's malice and evil plans. And there's evil plans. Basically, you can come up with six evil plans that Saul makes to try to knock off David because Saul is so jealous of him. And yet, nevertheless, we came to realize that the point of seeing these two, the reason they run parallel, God's favor, Saul's malice. God's favor, Saul's anger and jealousy. They run parallel through that passage to teach us a great lesson. And the lesson is this. God's favor is greater than even the king's hatred or even evil plans against you. Or you can't thwart God's purpose for your life. Or greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Or though the wrong seems off so strong, God is ruler yet. Or nobody, not even the king, can succeed in your demise. They have to get by God's sovereign hand. 
My mom taught me a poem that she learned back in college years ago. She taught it to me from the time I was a little boy, and maybe I can get it right, but it says, in the center of the circle of the will of God I stand, nothing can harm me but by his dear hand. And there is surely a great amount of comfort in the believer's life to know that nothing can enter your life, no matter how much authority. I mean, President Clinton could call you up tonight and say he's mad and he's going to get you. And he can't get you because you're one of God's elect, one of God's chosen people whom he loves, and, and you're, you're, you're protected and, and guarded and governed um, by his sovereignty. And he can even turn the evil around. Everything, it's like playing a game of chess. Everything Saul does to try to bring damage to David turns out to exalt David's position in Israel. And so that's quickly the review by way of this morning. Now, some of you that complain about my reviews being too long, you can't complain about that. That was not that long. All right? Now, um, <clears throat> I want us to remember something. We know from the New Testament that the hermeneutic of the Old Testament, the stories of the Old Testament are told in order to help us learn to persevere. They're told to help us have hope. They're told to encourage us. They're also told to rebuke us and correct us that we can be thoroughly furnished in all good works. But they are given a purpose. Now, the number one honest thing that we need to take away from 1 Samuel 18 is to be greatly comforted and greatly encouraged that regardless when circumstances around us seem to be falling apart and people seem to be against us, we can know this. They're, they're, they're at the very, very best, they're just a pawn in God's sovereign hand to use in our life. And for this, we can greatly rejoice. Now, some of you sitting here, you may not think that applies as much as others. But many of you that have had trouble in your jobs, have had trouble in, in, uh, in, in some family relationship, you can start to say, oh, you mean God really is sovereign over the affairs of my life? That even, even people that would be against me, like the Apostle Paul, and this struck me so loud again today, uh, so clear today, even the Apostle Paul said, I even delight in insults. Now, can you imagine delighting in an insult? The Apostle Paul delights in insults, and the reason he can delight in insults is because a sovereign God allows them into your life to humble you so that you could be weak, so his grace could make you strong. And so there is much to say. Now, here are some other ways this text can apply. There's no way I could be exhaustive, but let's then start working through some more application. I think this is a great one. This one, in fact, when I live with this next principle in mind, I'm going to tell you my life is so much better than when I forget this one. It goes like this. Surely... Surely this passage reveals to us how to apply 1 Peter 5, 6 to our lives. Now, Steve asked, does anyone know where these verses are found about humble yourself in the sight of the Lord? That we sang a little bit ago? One of the reasons I knew that is because it was in tonight's sermon. But I want you to see this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Something has dawned on me since chapter 16, and it's just been growing every week, and I only know this from reading ahead, that it's going to even increase, is the fact that David refuses to promote himself. Now, please watch this, everybody. This is a principle that you can uh, really apply to your life. We sing, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, you know, that he may live. But I don't know if we know about applying that to our life. Throughout 1 Samuel, you see this happening again and again, particularly in the life of David. Let me go back with you. You can go back to the 16th chapter and let's quick, do a quick perusal through and see what I'm talking about. First off, go to verse 11 of chapter 16. Sam, Jesse is there to anoint the new king. Jesse's sons go 0 for 7. They all get rejected. Jesse says, or Samuel says, Jesse, do you have any more sons? And he goes, well, just one more, but he's just keeping the sheep. He goes, we won't even sit down until you bring them. My, my point is, David is promoted, and what's he doing? Nothing but being obedient. Hiding in the fields. 
Then go to 1618 and look what it says. It says, one of the servants answered, I have seen the son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He's a brave man and a warrior. What's this? This is another scenario. Now we're back at the king's palace. And the king is tormented by an evil spirit from the Lord. And several people have asked, what does that mean, an evil spirit from the Lord? We'll talk about that in a little bit if we get a chance here. But I want to say this. There he is. And in the councils of the king's palace, David is still out shepherding. Now he's been anointed, but he's still just out being a shepherd boy, killing lions and bears. And being faithful as a shepherd boy, God has one of his servants, has one of his servants who also happens to be one of Saul's servants, who happened to be passing through Bethlehem one day and saw a little Hebrew uh, a corner band. And he particularly took note of the guy on the harp. He says, man, that guy is a good-looking man. I've never heard anybody play the harp like that. And so there he is again, being promoted by God. And then chapter 17 and verse 17. I want you to notice something very interesting. Go over to chapter 17 and verse 17. The scripture says, as in the story of David and Goliath that we studied last Sunday, now Jesse said to his son David, take this bit of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Again, David is out being a shepherd boy, being faithful. And what happens? His dad has an idea. And he just is submissive to the authority over him. He goes to fight Goliath. And as he does, he gets there just in time to see Goliath mocking the armies of God. And he can't stand it because he loves God's name so much. And he goes to fight. Then down to 1731. Notice something else. 1731. Look what it says. What David was said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. I think it is very, very significant in this story that David does not go to Saul and say, I will fight Goliath. But David is asking questions. What's going to be done to the man who kills this man, Goliath? And they, as they, David, David makes some kind of comment around the circles of his brothers and says, look, I, 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 I'll take that guy out. And somehow, it got back to the king, and he doesn't promote himself. The man comes, and Saul questions him. In fact, the first thing Saul says is, you can't go, you're too young. And then I want you to notice chapter 17, 56, and 57. When he comes back from battle, surely you would think this. He would run up to the king and say, King, here's Saul's head for it. Or here's, excuse me, that was Saul. King Saul, here's Goliath's head. But he doesn't. Abner brings him to Saul. And then in chapter 18 and verse 5, would you look there? He's submissive to Saul, even though... He knows he's the anointed one by Samuel. In 1813, look down to what it says in the text. It says, So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns. There he is, under authority. Now watch, 1817, he turns down the king's daughter from sheer humility. 1823, notice the words to the servants. He says, Do you think it's a small thing to become the king's son-in-law? Even though he'd been promised... The Goliath, or not Goliath, because of killing Goliath, he'd been promised a daughter. And then I want you to notice 1830, everybody. It says the Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success. He could have easily had a coup. Now we're not even done, because you know what else, friends? Listen, we are going to find out in the future that David is hiding in a cave. Saul, in his maniac stage, is running around trying to kill him. And Saul goes in to use the bathroom one night. And David's men are hiding in the cave. And as Saul takes off his robe and leaves it, David goes over and cuts off a piece of it, and then Saul goes walking back out of the cave, and he stands up in the cave and says, Look, Saul, I could have killed you. And then he's grieved that he even cut off a part of the skirt of the king. He's grieved that he would touch the Lord's anointed. Now you're going to think, all of these ways, he was anointed king. Tell me if this doesn't sound like the ways of God. Just listen carefully. He was anointed king, and for 11 years he does not become king. For 11 years he runs like a, has to hide out in mountains and caves. 
He eventually gets, you'll see next chapter after Saul tries to kill him, he has to run for his life. Now you would think, well, if he was anointed king, then God's about to make him king. But get this, he gets anointed king, and it's about 13 years from the time he's anointed till the time he becomes king. My friends, is there any lesson for a New Testament Christian here tonight? Oh, there's a big lesson. How long was the promise to Abraham given before Isaac was born? How many years was Moses on the backside of the desert? You know, a tremendous message would be on the slowness of God. And something we can take from this text, friends, is this. We need to not promote ourselves, but to be patient to believe God's promise. And that is God will be faithful to us. We need to be a humble servant. Every single time I get upset and discouraged in the areas of ministry, every time, it is because I start thinking about being successful. I start thinking of where I may want to go. I start thinking thoughts like a businessman might think of career or an actor might think of career or a football player might think of career rather than thinking of just being faithful to daily shepherding God's people. And I'm going to tell you, my friends, it's a wonderful way to live, to humble yourselves before God. If He wants to exalt you, let Him exalt you. But there is so much I hear today about manipulation. We hear about brown-nosing. We hear about worry, fretting, scheming, planning, doing all kinds of things for 11 more years. In fact, look at this. In the way the text is laid out, Keith Kenor talks about this in his chart. He says, 14 chapters report about 11 years, a fugitive years, versus... These years uh, in which he's actually king, 38 chapters dedicated to 40 years. So there's a, a greater chapter per year ratio when he's a fugitive. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that we're about to enter a study for the next 14 chapters learning about David's fugitive years? Because so much of that is for us. It's to help you persevere and to continue. And can I tell you, just be faithful. What has God called you to? You be faithful to do that. And let him promote you and, and take you... Um, in, in, in his timing. In fact, let me just, just stay where you are, and, and I want to just read you one short passage that Jesus Christ comments. Um, and you have to wonder, as, as familiar as Jesus was with the Old Testament, when he makes comments like this, I wonder what story he was thinking about in the Old Testament. Listen to what he says. Jesus says in Luke 14 and verse 7, when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table... And in that society, that was a big thing. That would be the, the equivalent of really trying to make a, a, an impression. What table you got to sit at, sit, sit at? When someone invites you to a wedding feast, which is a big social event, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take your seat and take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. My friends, we live in a world that says promote yourself, that says put your stick your foot in the door, that says make sure that you, and I'm going to tell you, humble yourself before God, he will exalt you in due time. I can't help but think of the man that has been exalted in areas of popularity and ministry more than any man in this century. And I think that would be Billy Graham. And I've told you the stories of Billy Graham and his humility. And the fact that, as, as Erwin Lutzer tells the story of, of Billy Graham coming into his office and Billy and Erwin telling him how much he loved him and appreciated his ministry and Billy Graham just bowing his head and, and Erwin Lutzer telling me when I was on that study of the life of Luther in Germany, he goes, I felt like just falling through the floor. And he says, Billy Graham, I could tell he was grieved in his heart as he hung his head in my office and I just thought, Here, here's my hero, Billy Graham, and I, I'm, I've done something to hurt him. What have I done? And And... 
he says, he was, the story he was telling him is when all the other kids were impersonating Elvis, I was impersonating you. And Graham looked up at him and says, Erwin, I have failed God so many times in my life, nobody should imitate me. When I hear stories, you read the lives of Brainerd and Whitfield, and, and you hear men, you'll hear men who humble themselves before God, and He will exalt you in the proper time. And we spend all this time scheming. How can I get in on the good side of somebody? Can I tell you, uh, Warren Wearsby spoke to Paul Dixon when he became the president of Cedarville College, and he made this statement that I never forgot in 1978. He said, Warren, he said, Warren said to Paul, Warren said, fall on your face. If you fall on your face before God in private, you will not fall on your face before man in public. And we need to remember, friends, that we need to humble ourselves before God. And, and I, I even think of, of the way Satan tempted Christ. How did Satan tempt Christ? Here, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. In other words, he wanted him, Christ to exalt himself at the wrong time. He would be exalted one day, but Satan's temptation was this. Exalt yourself, but do it now. Now, I want you to see something. Everybody watch this. I don't know how far we'll get tonight on this, but I want you to, the next point is set up by this point. Now watch. In this passage, we certainly learn not to promote ourselves. But now watch the other side of this. Let's compare David's refusal to exalt himself versus the impulsiveness seen in Saul. If you want to do a study on the lack of, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. If you want to do a study on self-control, how not to have self-control, study the life of Saul. Here's a man with no self-control whatsoever. Let me take you back through a couple of reminders. We've studied this way back, but um, let me just remind you of a couple of things. I won't take you to the scriptures. I'll just re- re- repeat them to you quickly. Back in chapter 13, after he'd just been anointed, he couldn't wait for Samuel to show up to make the sacrifice, and so he took the sacrifice into his own hands and grieved God, and that was the, that was the promise came then, your family will not sit on the throne. And then in chapter 14, verse 18, when Jonathan is out fighting the battles and, and Saul is, is, is scared and not doing anything, he calls for the priest and the priest comes and in the middle of the priest's prayer, Saul goes, stop! Because he heard a big uproar and he cuts off the priest in the middle of his prayer and goes out to battle. While they're in that battle, while Jonathan is, is cleaning Philistines up, he makes a rash vow. Anybody who eats any food will come under the curse of God. And then after that, here's Jonathan, the war hero in Israel, and he says, Jonathan, you're going to die, and he's going to kill his own son because of the stupid rash vow that he made. And then, in the next battle, he keeps the king Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle alive. Stop and think of this. You know how upset that that grieved God's heart. And while in the midst of the battle, the men are enjoying the spoils, he says, ah, they want it so bad, and he feared the people. He gave in to that impulsively. And then in chapter 16, Samuel is so afraid of Saul's unpredictable temper that he thinks that even Samuel the prophet would be killed if he finds out he's going to go knowing a son, a new king. In chapter 17, 25, he makes rash promises. What was that? The king said, whoever kills Goliath gets my daughter. He never followed through. He never followed through on that. And then he trembles with anger and jealousy in chapter 18. In chapter 18, verse 10, 11, he's got a spear in his hand, and David's playing the harp, and he throws the spear at him twice. And then guess what we're going to read about in chapter 19? He does it again. In chapter 18, verse 13, you see there's no good forethought. He just sends David out to try to get him killed. You, just, you see a man with absolutely no plan, who just is, is, is led by his emotions of the moment. To live by your feelings rather than the Scriptures is to be like Saul. 
And I think what is so interesting here is David refusing to promote himself versus and, and a tremendous amount of self-control to not try to throw a coup or to, or to take advantage of his position of popularity versus Saul's impulsiveness. And I tell you, we get ourselves in big trouble in our society because we're so impulsive. People, young couples with Visa cards, thirty and forty thousand dollars, running around buying things without praying. Every blue light special comes along. Oh, you know, thirty percent off. I got to have it. The impulsiveness that we give in to the lust of the flesh on all sides is a demonstration of a man who has grieved the Holy Spirit and in fact has been rejected by God. And I want to tell you this is something that we need to really consider. The scriptures were written to give us hope and to help us live and to correct us and instruct us and certainly that is the case here. Just a couple more and I'll run through these quickly. Fourth, jealousy is a serious sin that will destroy if you don't handle it. In this passage... Elab and Saul are full of jealousy. And it comes out being sarcastic. It comes out very evil. And I'd like to ask you this. Have you ever been an Elab or a Saul to anybody? In fact, as you remembered, we learned from last week, Elab's attitude is the exact opposites of David's. David's is, I'm going to live for the glory of God. If there is a big nine-foot Goliath out there defiling the armies of the living God, then he's going to have to handle deal with me because I'm going to stand up because God's name will not be taken in vain around me. Versus Elaab, who would just assume Goliath cursed the name of God, then let his little brother get the glory. And the same thing is true, friend, with Saul. Saul keeps a jealous eye. Look at verse 9. There he is. He's jealous. He's, he's upset with David, and he plans and schemes the rest of his life. In fact, 1 John 3.15 makes this comment, the man who hates his brother to a murderer. And something else I want you to consider is from the book of James, chapter 3. In fact, why don't you go there just quickly, because I want you to see uh, this well-illustrated in Saul's life in James, chapter 3. Look at this. Start with verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that come from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy... And selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. By the way, it's very clear that Saul's jealousy is exacerbated when the evil spirit from the Lord comes upon him. And that's what makes him throw the spear twice. Verse 16, for where you have envy and selfish ambition... There you find disorder in every evil practice. But now look at this. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And friends, it is a terrible thing to be jealous. The Scriptures, as I mentioned this morning, makes this comment, who can stand before jealousy? Who can stand before envy? And if you want to know something that is on the, the side of the ledger of Saul versus the side of the ledger of David, is this, that the overwhelming jealousy, and F.B. Meyer makes a comment, he says, oh, Saul, instead of throwing that spear, would have dropped to his knees, confessed his sin, and pleaded with God to help him and to bless David. And I must tell you, friends, that the number one way to overcome jealousy is to pray for God's blessing to be upon the person that you're jealous of. 
I have been with people, and they've been very hard situations. Situations where marriage partners have, have left and are going to marry somebody else, and the person is there hopeless and so angry and so bitter. And I'm going to tell you, when you can get, when, when you can start to pray, God, please bless this person, even though I'm not going to be a part of it anymore. May you bless them and use them for your honor and glory. And you can pray this. It even says so in the book of uh, Matthew. It says, when, when they hate you, pray for them. And I would just encourage you, friends, not to let this come in. Look at all kinds of evil and trouble come when jealousy reigns. And it's a sure sign when you're jealous that you care more about your own kingdom than you do the heavenly kingdom. Something else. I, I think that Jeremiah 17.9 is explained in Saul. What's in Saul's heart? Let's just go back to chapter 18. I'll look at, we'll look at this and we'll be finished. We'll look. What's in Saul's heart? Go back through this and just notice a couple of things. First off, he's jealous, verses 7 through 9. Not pleased with the Lord's glory and honor of the armies, or, or the honor of the armies of the living God, but the entire focus is on himself. Now watch this. Verses 10 and 11, murderous hatred. Verses 12 through 16, fearful of man, not of God. Over and over, this is a theme in Saul's life. Look at verses 17 through 21. A total unconcern for others, even his own daughter. He doesn't care if they become widows. And then get this, 17c. Look at the last part of verse 17, and then look at verse 24. You see that? Now watch. He is rooting for God's enemies. Here's the king of Israel rooting that the Philistines will knock off the number one warrior in Israel. And then he's in verse 21, he's cheering against God's anointed. Now, friends... Look, the Bible says in Jeremiah 17.9, the heart of man is desperately wicked, deceitful of all things, who can know it? A major foundational principle of understanding the salvation that's expressed in the Bible is to understand the, the utter wickedness that's in the human heart. And you stop and think about the, the, the scheming and the planning to knock somebody off and that kind of hatred. And you start to get a good insight again, friends, that we can't trust ourselves any farther than we can throw a circus elephant. And we've got to be so careful in our, in our handling of our own hearts. We need to, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and he that trusteth in himself is a fool. And there's also a great principle about friendship here. We'll talk about that another time because that's coming up a lot in the scriptures. We'll talk more about that, but the, the, the principle between Jonathan and David is a great one. Now, let me make this one comment. I don't know if it's going to suffice. I did re refer to it a couple weeks ago. I've had... Two or three people asked me today, what about this evil spirit from the Lord? Notice verse 10 in the passage. It says, an evil spirit from the Lord came forcefully upon Saul. Now, the same thing back to chapter 16. If you look at verses 14 through 23, it says verse 14 in chapter 16, an evil spirit from the Lord. Well, we know this, that God does not tempt any man with, e with evil. And we, I, I think that uh, the, the simplest explanation is, a sovereign God who normally would be, would be uniquely protecting the king of his covenant people removed that protection and as, as with between Job and the discussion between Satan and God concerning Job, Satan has to get permission to be able, before he can do anything and then even God puts limits on it. And I think what happened is God either removed his blessing or removed his protection, or we know he removed his blessing, but he removed something so that the evil spirits, who of course are going to attack the, the, the messianic people, 
could have a full-blown wrath or their full-blown hatred exposed and, and bring torments to Saul. So I think when it says an evil spirit from the Lord, it's very simply this, an evil spirit allowed by God upon Saul who had been rejected. Okay. Now, covered lots of material and I threw lots of you at you fast. I'm, I'm sort of thinking on Sunday nights you're a little bit more familiar than what you are on Sunday mornings when we're going through the text for the first time, but uh, let's have just a couple minutes of Q&A then uh, regarding anything from this morning or this evening. Okay? And that concludes today's expository word. Please join us again for more classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Take care. Take care.